0: Sounds like there's a lot of confusion around um, students. Students don't seem to know what's going on. So, um, yeah, I didn't mention it just because I know it's kind of seems like there's some rumors going on about it. But we definitely want to keep that in mind and uh, be in prayer for it. I've heard that from multiple sides. Sure. That's what what the news is reporting, I think. so. So, yeah. Alright, so um, if you were with us two weeks ago, you'll remember that we kind of didn't get through that whole lesson. Um, I think maybe what I'll do is I was going to start here, but I'm just going to come back um, and just kind of take a look at where we're at in the text. I think it would be helpful for us. We're in Chapter 7. We're, we've, we're, we've done most of Chapter 7 already, um, but we're coming to the end of Chapter 7. There was a particularly big topic that I wanted to... to be able to touch on so we're in chapter seven and i just want to kind of sum up what happens um we're still in the scrolls um the scroll section of the text so i don't have a handout for you because i I had those i had them for already for this lesson and um i had printed a bunch out and i didn't feel like printing printing a bunch more so um if you have your bibles we'll be in chapter seven um but uh we'll We'll just take a a quick overview of what we covered last week, just so we know where we're at in the text. So we're still in the scroll. So the scroll is still being unrolled. Um, I've showed you this image a couple of times, but really 6 through 16 is the scroll. And then um, chapter 7, chapter 6 and 7 really are are the opening of the seals of the scroll. So we're still in the opening of the seals. Um, We're covering... Um, Almost the rest of them, I was going to try to get into chapter 8 The very beginning of chapter 8 is when the last, the seventh seal is opened Um, But uh, we're going to just get through chapter 7 tonight Um, But just kind of as a reminder, the scroll, it covers the bulk of, um, a a big part of the book of Revelation So from 6 through through 16, um, there's three sets of seven As I mentioned, there's um, the seven scrolls, the seven bowls, and the seven trumpets it almost rhymes. It'd be cool if it did, but it doesn't. Um, but seven sets of, uh, or three sets of seven, and they all kind of are overlapping, right? So it's not this is going to happen. These seven things are going to happen. Then these seven things are going to happen. Then these seven things are going to happen. But rather, it's kind of a, a different angle or a different perspective on 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 the tribulation, on the 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 um, the the, the uh, persecution of the church um, that are, that's taking place, even as um, John is being written, even as John is experiencing the revelation of Jesus. And so we're seeing the unrolling of the scroll for, um, from chapter 6 through 16. Um, and again, so we're, we kind of are making our way through that, and we've kind of gotten through this. This, this, te- this um, quote just is a reminder that the purpose of Revelation is, first of all, a letter to the first century Christians who are enduring heightened persecution at the hands of empire. It's really important to keep in mind that the people that it 's originally written to are really experiencing persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire, um, and then along with that, which revelation is really trying to get in is with the temptation i mean with the persecution comes a temptation to compromise okay so to compromise their faith such in such a way that they avoid being persecuted because Romans were generally um, tolerant of other religious groups that they had come and captured, right? They come and capture the Jewish people, and they're generally tolerant of the Jewish people, so long as their religion doesn't challenge Caesar in any way, doesn't challenge the Roman Empire in any way. Um, But there is a clear challenge to the empire when someone says, Jesus is Lord. That is a political statement in the first century. To say, in, in the first century Roman Empire, to say Jesus is Lord is to declare that Caesar is not. Um, that, that was a proclamation that was, that, was, um, that was a political statement to say Caesar is Lord. Um, that, was, that was a clear statement in support of the Roman Empire. So for Christians, these, this sect of Jewish believers who believe in Christ saying Jesus is Lord, they're saying Caesar is not. And so we're not going to worship Caesar. We're not going to pretend like Caesar has, has some sort of, sort of deity. And that becomes a problem for um, the empire. Um, that becomes a problem for the empire and so really what takes place is there's this there begins to be persecution sometimes it's small and, and small groups of people they're they're tempted they they're persecuted even just by being excluded from things you're being excluded from um, certain uh, social activities because you're a Christian you don't participate in certain social activities because you're a Christian it starts small like that but it slowly ends up building up and and ends up being a really serious persecution by the time um, revelation is is written and so it's really important to keep in mind that like um persecution was really serious in the time of revelation and that there was some serious persecution going on um so we we looked at the end of chapter six remember the end of the end of chapter six ends with this question um those that are um, facing the judgment of christ and and of of god are, are calling out for the the um, rocks and the mountains to fall on them because who can endure the wrath of the Lamb for a great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? We're left with this question, almost like a cliffhanger in chapter 6, of who is able to stand and the, assumpt- the, the presumptuous answer, the, the, what we would assume is the answer is no one. No one is able to stand. But what we get in chapter 7, some people call it an interlude, but that makes it seem like it's separate from the seals. I think it's still a part of the seals. It's a really important part of the, the breaking of the seals. What we get is an answer to that question. Who is able to stand? First we're told, after this I saw, and then he goes on to describe 144,000. Now we've been told this before. I know some of you are here and some of you weren't here two weeks ago, and so you're hearing a little bit of re- repeated here. We're told that he sees a group of 144,000 who are going to be sealed by God. Um, and keep that in mind, that there, there is a sealing that is happening. Um, and we're told at first it's 144,000 uh, um, out of every tribe of Israel. And we're given that list. We're told he, see, he, he hears this. Okay? Or sorry, he, I'm getting confused. I saw four angels. It's, this is later. And I heard. Okay? He hears. He hears the number. 144,000. And then he hears a list of of where they come from. Um, and so that takes place. Um, but then we come here. Let me see. I'm jumping ahead. We, we did all this last week, so I'm kind of jumping ahead. This is the marking. Um, I, as a reminder, the marking specifically being the name of Yahweh and the name of the Lamb, which we learn later on in the book of Revelation. The priests specifically bore the name of Yahweh on their forehead. Um, in the Old Testament, we're given that in Exodus, the description of that holy to the Lord, holy to Yahweh, they're they're bearing that. And so that's kind of what's meant by being sealed by God. But again, we're told that he sees or he hears um, the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Just like earlier in the text, he hears lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, um, the the Messiah, right? The the one who is worthy, Um, that is who is worthy to open the seals. But what does he see? He sees a Lamb. He hears lion, he sees lamb. Here again, after he hears 144,000 from Israel, he sees a great multitude, right? I heard this number, but I saw a great multitude. And obviously we talked last time about comparing those two. What's the difference in 144,000 from Israel versus a great multitude from every tribe and every language and, and, every, you know, and from all nations, right? That's a huge difference. Um, it's a big difference in what the crowd looks like. Um, not just 140, not this small group of people from Israel, but rather this this huge group, this uncountable multitude from every tribe and every tongue. Okay, so that is the army. Um, so again, this is what this image, sorry it's blurry, but this is what this image is, is saying. He hears 144,000. He sees um, an uncountable um, group of people. Okay, so that's kind of where we're at in um, think we came we made it all the way to here Um, i want to talk about what that is okay so chapter 7 verse 10 we're told they cried out in a loud voice now this is the multitude from every tribe and every tongue and every nation right they tried they cried out in a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our god who is seated on the throne and to the lamb we talked last week about the significance of saying you know, we, we, we sometimes talk about salvation as if it's something we have, right? I, are you saved? I have salvation. I am saved, right? It's almost something like we have, we, we possess, um, as if we can get it, as if we need to do this certain list of things, right? Um, I, I've, I've kind of railed against it a little bit in a sermon before, but that's that's my biggest issue with the, the, the Romans' road to salvation, right? It's do this and this and this and this, and then you're saved, right? And it's something you have. Um, But in reality, what we're told is that salvation belongs to who? To the multitude of people? To the great multitude of people? No. Salvation doesn't belong to them. Salvation belongs to our God. Right? And so what it is is that they are participating in God's salvation. Right? So if if we say we're saved, what we really mean is not I have salvation, not I'm saved, but rather I'm participating in God's salvation. I'm participating in the salvation that God has, that God has accomplished in the Lamb, right? The, the salvation that comes through the Lamb, the slain Lamb who has been raised. Um, I'm, I'm participating, right, in that salvation. So, um, and that's what we talked about. I think we, we answered that question. That kind of gets to that question. What is the significance of salvation belonging to God instead of the worshiping crowd? Um, and this is, this is a quote here. I'll read it again. The lesson from Revelation has something significant to say about the understanding of salvation by the first Christians. The universal testimony of all who are saved—that massive group of people, that multitude from every nation—is that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. This is to say, humility is the mark of those who have been saved. Okay. So, what is a mark? What is what is a sign of salvation? It's it's humility. It's saying, you know, if it wasn't for God, right, I wouldn't be here. You know, the salvation is from God, right? So that's really an important part of of how we understand salvation. And it's right there in in Revelation. It's really important. All right. So now let's get to the question. What is the salvation that they speak of? How would you describe it? What is it? I think we did ask this question last week, but I want to open it up again. us church people might come to this question and assume that we all agree we all agree what it means to be saved we know we know what it means we agree to and you know that's it's a it's a given right the answer to this question but let's just think about it what does it mean what is what is the salvation that we speak of
1: could
0: it be salvation from persecution okay might be interpreted that way yes Um, in context, and again, we didn't read Revelation 7, so this makes it a little bit more difficult. In, in context, they are described as being as wearing white and being white and, and washed in the blood. And it sounds like a contradiction, right? They're wearing these white clothes because they've been washed in the blood and washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? So it's a, I think it's a more... Um, the, the praise song that they're singing in this verse, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb... This it's more of a proclamation of salvation in general, Um, and and especially considering it's the multitude, right? It's the multitude that that's proclaiming this, right? So, any other thoughts? What is what is the salvation they're speaking of? Salvation from death. Okay. How 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 would you describe it? If somebody asked you. Answer, is that what you're sure. Asking? I mean, what do you what what's the answer you give to this question? Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. The of sin. All right. Good. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, I I just I think it's good for us to think about this. How would we how would we describe this to someone? Who asked us? You know, if you were asked, what does that mean? What does it mean for you to be saved? Um, also, but also it's something
1: special in the students. And this gives itself a proud saying. It's something that they all share. It's something they all have to talk about. Sure. Good. So they share that
0: salvation in Christ. Right. Yeah, and I mean, you described that there is a gift, right? A gift from Christ, right? A gift from God. Um and that kind of goes back to saying that it's not our salvation. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. We are receiving it from God. We are um, participating in, I mean, we, we describe this as holiness. I mean, we're holiness people, Nazarenes. We're holiness. We None of us are holy on our own, right? I'm not holy on my own. I, and even in the Old Testament, if you look at what holiness is, it, they, they are only holy insofar as they are in communion with God, insofar as they have been... Uh, set aside by God and, and are participating in the life of God, right? It's not their holiness. It's not our holiness. It's not our salvation. We, we participate in, in God's holiness, God's salvation, um, and we receive it, right, as a gift. Yeah. And, and, and to kind of go along with what you're saying there, Jordan, it's not just I'm participating in it, right? It's we are participating in it. No. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, John Wesley says there's no holiness but social holiness, Okay. There's no holiness, and you could say there's no salvation except for social salvation, and that is we do it together as a group of people. Um, it, it seemed to be like a theme, and I think a lot of us have it drilled in our mind, the, the idea of I can be a Christian without going to church. You are not a practicing Christian if you're not going to church. I'm just saying that, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying it because I believe it. Um, you know, we, If we're not participating in the life of the church, then we're not practicing Christians. We can't be a practicing Christian on our own. We have to do it together. We have to do it one another. Um, yeah, again, I know we've, we've spent some time on this question already. But, but yeah, I mean, just thinking about it. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean? What is the salvation? Now, this kind of ties into what Pastor Kevin said. Verse 14, just a little bit later, we're, we're told who these people are. And it's the multitude, which I, I personally believe, again, I've told you, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation. What do the different symbols mean? Um, I, I would say that, um, obviously, we could be potentially wrong, but I think a pretty good um, thing to say that this group of people from every tribe is describing the saved, those who are being brought into the kingdom of God, those who have experienced, um, who have received God's salvation, who are participating in God's salvation, right? Um but later we're told that this group of people, they are they who have come out of the great ordeal. Um, this Greek word is philipsis. Philipsis. And I want to spend some time on this word um, because I think it might be one of the most misunderstood things in the book of Revelation and the most um, uh, vivid visual in, in the book of Revelation. So they are, these are those who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is often translated Great Tribulation. So, you've probably heard that term before, Great Tribulation. We're going to get into this a little bit later in the book of Revelation because it kind of, the, the theme sort of comes up a little bit. But we're going to kind of talk about what this means. This is the Greek word, phlipsis, and it occurs in the book of Revelation a lot. And it's already occurred. We're only in chapter seven, but it's already occurred a lot. Um, and so, again, it's often translated Tribulation. Um, in this particular um, instance, in my version, it's translated great ordeal. Um, here's where we've seen it so far. Verse, verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution. Persecution, tribulation, ordeal, the same word in Greek. All right? We've got this big, scary word, tribulation, that we probably think of, these images that we, we think of. Um, it's the same word as persecution. It's the same word as affliction. Revelation 2, verse 9. This is one of the messages to the church. I know your affliction. That could have been translated tribulation. That could have been translated ordeal. It could have been translated temptation. It's translated affliction here. I know your affliction and your poverty. And then he goes on to say, Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be, you may be tested. tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction. Same word there. Flip, flips this." It could be persecution. It could be um, any of these words, right? Okay, we've got another word that English will translate it to in chapter or verse twenty-two of chapter two. Beware! I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress. Philipsis could be affliction, could be persecution. I am throwing them into great distress, and so um, there, in that instance, God's doing it, right? Um, Jesus is doing. This is a message coming from Jesus' words. Um, This is, uh, the uh, if you'll remember the messages to the church, one of the messages is that they are being sucked into Jezebel, right? Now Jezebel obviously is not a literal person that John or Jesus is talking about and John is communicating to them but rather is a character. It's a representation really of the empire um, of of compromising their faith, being um, unfaithful to God, unfaithful to Yahweh for the sake of um, of and, a, and the, the language that John's using there of sort of getting in bed with Jezebel, right? Um, and so committing adultery—that's an that's a old Testament language, right? Um, not literally adultery, but rather um, you're being unfaithful to Yahweh, which means you're being uh, because you're trying to be faithful to the empire and you're trying to be faithful to God. You're, you're, bound, you're holding those, trying to hold those things in, in tension. Um, and so in this, this case, it's God or it's Jesus, almost as in judgment because of punishment bringing on um, distress or affliction or persecution um, to individuals, to, believe, to supposed believers who are being unfaithful. And then in chapter 7, again, where we're at right now, I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. And he said to me, These are those who have come out of the great ordeal. Now we've seen great ordeal, great philipsis right here, great philipsis. Um, I think there's one other instance where those two words are put together. So we think of great ordeal as being a very specific thing. The thlipsis is used to describe persecution, suffering because of human sin, and also judgment um, from God. So it could be persecution because of your faith. It could be judgment from God. It could be um, the, the affliction that human beings, that the empire is causing on to Christians. So, so it, it could be all of these different things that are happening. Um, and the tie there is that persecution often leads to disciples compromising their faith. And that, that results in them being almost in the same group, the same um, uh, uh, group of people that the, the empire is in. Right? They're, they're being unfaithful just like the Romans are being unfaithful. Right. Just like the Romans are not even attempting to be faithful. Um, And so when that happens, they're guilty of what the persecutors are guilty of. They're not being faithful to God alone, which is first commandment faithfulness. Right. What what the book of Revelation is so concerned with. So a couple of important notes Um, important about this is that the salvation that is spoken of in verse 10 does not mean that they have escaped. Right. Now, it says they have come out of. Does it say they have escaped? Does it say that they have been saved from? No, it says that they have come out of the great ordeal, the great tribulation, the great persecution that has happened to them. Let me tell you, if there has ever been a time in our world where Christians were being persecuted greatly, it was now. It's right here. It's during this time. And so as he looks to the future of those who are being brought into the kingdom of God, it is those that made it through the world despite whatever level of persecution, tribulation they've experienced and they have been brought into the kingdom, right? They have this, this, this massive group of people who have been faithful despite persecution, despite um, the ordeal, ordeal and tribulation. So verse 14 says that they have come out of, it's not that they escape it, it's not that they're brought, they're, they're rescued from it, they're snatched away from it first before it happens, but rather they are being brought through the great tribulation, the persecution, the suffering, and it is their faithfulness through this persecution and suffering that allows them to celebrate the Lamb's salvation. They remain faithful to God, and so God marks them with a the seal. They have, they have made it through. So the second thing then is the idea that the great tribulation is some sort of set time in the future, um, so remember, revelation is first of all written to first century Christians. They are going through a great tribulation right then. They are going through their great tribulation right then. The, the persecution as a matter of fact, um, and, and John seems to have a, a prophetic view of this he 's being revealed to Jesus by them. The persecution gets worse after this after this letter is sent. Domitian gets worse at persecuting, and the, the successors of um, Domitian. Continue to persecute Christians um, and it increases. And so John seems to have a prophetic view of this that, yeah, it's bad now, it's about to get even worse. Um, the empire is about to really start systematically persecuting the church. And so, um, this idea that it's some great tribute that John is primarily concerned with something that's going to happen 2,000 plus years later after this letter is written. Um, it doesn't really fall in line with what John is writing about. What, who is John writing to? What the purpose of this is? And so, um, and then later, and we'll talk about this again when we get to it, but later we're going to hear that word millennium. And a lot of times these things are combined together, the millennium, the, the thousand years, um, and the tribulation. They're combined together um, as if they, they they somehow coincide. There's different people that have different opinions that the the 1,000 years is going to include the tribulation or the 1,000 years is going to come before or after the tribulation. Um, but again, John, John is primarily um, focused on this group of people that are reading it right now. Um, I want to watch this video because this, I think this will help demonstrate what I'm trying to say.
2: While most of us live a life relatively free from persecution because of our faith, there are many who do not. For as long as Christianity has existed, there have been those persecuted because of it, even today. In order for us to know how persecution affects us today, we must know how it has manifested itself across history. Beginning around a year after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Stephen was stoned to death because of his faith. In fact, nearly all the apostles paid the price of their life for their faith. 64 A.D. The Roman Empire, led by Nero, began the first recorded systematic torturing and murder of Christians. This was the first time a governing body enacted the persecution of Christians. Around 100 years later, Christians were killed in mass quantities for refusing to renounce their faith. It was not uncommon at this time for Christians to be robbed, assaulted, or even stoned for their faith. 250 A.D. All Christians were commanded to sacrifice to Roman gods or face immediate execution. The persecution continued until Constantine came to power in 300 AD and legalized Christianity. 717 AD The Pact of Dumar was enacted. While giving Christians certain rights, it brought a large list of restrictions in many countries. This pact forbade Christians from publicly displaying crosses and rebuilding churches after they were destroyed. 1300 AD A ruler at the time over Persia and Central Asia, conducted massacres of Christians on a wide scale in Mesopotamia, Persia, Asia Minor, and Syria. 1600 AD The Emperor of China banned Christianity for over 100 years. 1850 AD In Madagascar, the Queen prohibited the practicing of Christianity. It's estimated that over 100,000 died as a result. 1915 AD Ottoman army troops enacted a large massacre on Christian populations in Anatolia, Persia, and northern Mesopotamia regions. 1917 A.D. After a political change in Russia, tens of thousands of churches were destroyed or repurposed. This resulted in the murder of over 500,000 Orthodox Christians in the 20th century. Beginning in 1983, Christians in Sudan were under attack. Some estimates put the number of those martyred at over a million, with many more displaced present day, Christians are facing growing levels of persecution on the continents of Africa and Asia. There are many countries where being a Christian is punishable by death, several where it is punishable by significant time in prison, and even more where attempting to convert someone to Christianity is a crime. For as long as Christianity has existed, there have been those persecuted because of it. While Christianity can often seem like a safe choice to us, there are many who live where identifying with Christ means putting your life in severe danger what would you be willing to risk for your faith in Christ? So what I'm hoping that that
0: video demonstrates to us is that persecution has been happening since Jesus. Jesus was the first martyr. I know people say Stephen's the first martyr. I like to say Jesus is the first martyr. Um, He's killed because of his faithfulness to God. And then everyone who comes after and chooses to follow Jesus, even to the point of death, become martyrs because of their choice to remain faithful. Um, I think human beings have a tendency to be a little bit egocentric. um, And that means we um, think about what's going on in our context, what's going on in our time period, what's going on in our life. And we say, and then we read text, we read scripture, and, and we primarily like figure out what that means for us. And that's good in a lot of ways. Um, but we have to do something else. And as good Wesleyans, I will say that we, ha- we read Scripture this way. That we first understand that it is written to another group of people before we can fully understand what it means. You've heard me say that over and over again. Um, I think when we read Revelation really egocentrically, focusing on ourselves as Western Christians, as American Christians, what we are led to believe is that um, the idea of a great tribulation that John is talking about, that Jesus is talking about through John, is something that is going to happen to America sometime in 2050 or something like that. You know, people are trying to pin down the date of when this stuff's going to start happening um, and that it's starting now or something. Um, and, I, and I think that this is really dangerous. It misses the point of, of the of the original text to say that um, that John is primarily concerned with something that's going to happen in West, in America, you know, 2,000 plus years from now. That's what John was primarily concerned about. But, he, but in reality, he was talking... The, the truth of Revelation is that um, any of those Christians in those group, those countries were, that were being killed, 500,000 people in, in Russia, um, 200,000 people in Madagascar. Madagascar is tiny. 200,000 Christians killed in Madagascar. That's insane. If they had read Revelation in the period that they have been being persecuted, they very easily could have said, that's us. We're, we're, getting, we're experiencing the Great Tribulation in, in Madagascar right now. We're experiencing the great tribulation in Russia right now, right? And so it's this idea that that there's different parts in all over the world where where the great tribulation is happening, and I think that the U.S. becoming a little bit more um, um, uh, accepting of a bunch of different religions, and it causes us to have to interact with a bunch of different religions and people from different cultures. That is not persecution, right? Okay, that's not the type of persecution that was that was being experienced And it. Just right. That's what we were founded to do. We're right. Supposed to be a, a country of religious freedom. Sure. Which means any religion. Yeah. Worship here. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think is I just think it's dangerous for us to take that experience in our Western culture and and call that persecution. Um, and and this is where I, I hope I don't get myself in trouble. But even the idea that prayer being taken out of school, like I know tons of people have, have tied that to the beginning of the Great Tribulation and stuff like that. Um. Yeah, we want to be able to pray in school, but um, we're not forcing our religion on anyone, right, as Christians. And so uh, that's not the same thing as persecution. People have been killed for their faith, and it would be a a real misunderstanding. And this isn't to say that in America or in the West, um, as as the West becomes more tolerant of, of multiple religions and more pluralistic in our society, that doesn't mean that Christians won't experience serious persecution at some point. It might happen. Um, and we would say then, we are experiencing a great, the Great Tribulation. We are experiencing um, what it means to be faithful to Christ, um, and we're being punished for it. We're experiencing that punishment for it. So I, I want to say that that's, that's the perspective I'm taking on it. I know there's even modern-day people who take a different perspective on it, and um, you're, fi- you're free to to fall in that thought process. But I'm just telling you where I stand as a Wesleyan and, and how I read Scripture, I want us to be careful not to... to um, to misunderstand what what John is saying. Any thoughts? Yeah, I have I, have, I have, I'm thinking about this
1: um, back in the late 1600s, early early 1700s. There was a persecution of of uh, Puritans and various Christian groups by the Church of England. Yeah. They yeah. were they, they actually had great tribulations Brought on by, by persecution from the established church, and that's one of the reasons we end up with folks over here running away from that. Yeah. King James was, sure, was the worst, one of the worst. Yeah. So, so that I mean, they could be saved we're going through great tribulation. Yeah. Because they yeah. saw the, the way they saw. Right. The, sure. the Church of England at that, at that time. Yeah. I just thought of that was. Yeah. Way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean the historical perspective is helpful I mean, any That's really what I want us to think about. Anybody else have any thoughts? Yeah.
1: I, I do I guess and I apologize, I don't know if I've been some of this, but I was just curious on your tape, I guess thinking about the home tape. So, you know, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead. My understanding is at some point there'll be a one world leader in the Christ, and he will have power not just over the US but the whole world. and there will be a, a period my understanding: is seven years, and during half of that, the break of the covenant. and a lot of people associate that with the Great Tribulation. Sure. I don't disagree with anything you said about persecution Sure. Place. Do I, you, yeah. Did, do you not? Yeah. Associate um, that? I think. I'm just
0: I think that's a lot of reading into the text that a lot of people have done. Um, the they they pull the language: the seven years, the millennium, um, and we will get to that type of stuff eventually. But um, I would say that the way that I'm the way that we're approaching the book here, is that um, numbers, all of the, like, it's full of symbolism. And so we could take it literally, there's a literal, there's, so there's, um, you've probably heard this pre-millennialism, post-millennialism. There's another one that people rarely talk about, and it's amillennialism. And it's saying that the idea of a millennium is um, more of a, um, it's a symbol. It's, it's not like a literal thousand years. Um, and so the seven years, it's not a literal seven years. Um, Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation at all. Um, there's no the word antichrist doesn't happen. When antichrist is talked about in scripture, um, if you read the context, it's talking about anyone who lives a life opposed to Christ is an antichrist. So antichrist, someone who is opposed to Christ, antichrist. I don't like Christ. That's what antichrist means, right? And so, um, is there one antichrist? I don't think Scripture gives us evidence to think that there is one antichrist. But it references the beast, the serpent, and sure. The false prophet. Yeah. So the 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 unholy trinity, right. um, which we will we will get to. Um, those are really interesting symbols. Um, no, no, I'm sorry, if jump in. no, it's fine, it's fine. That, because I, I wanted. That's kind of why I decided to go ahead and break this lesson up into two. Because I knew that um, this was like big topics here that we're getting into as we get into millennium and tribulation and things like that. Um, uh, Off the top of my head, um, the beast, the um, what is it again? The serpent, the beast, beast, the serpent and the false prophet that um, those are all deeply connected to the book, to the to the Roman Empire. Um, The beast comes out of the sea. Um, There is that was a big part of as as um, Rome was conquering the world, they had to They had to come out. It talks about the um, one of them. And again, I'm off the top of my head without having gotten to it yet. um, I'm just pulling back memories from my previous study before. Um, There's a mention of the city of seven hills that the beast is ruling over or that the serpent is ruling over. I can't remember which one it is exactly. Um, That's Rome. Rome was known as the city of the seven hills. It's not even that it's not even that deep of a code. Um, So, again, the perspective that we're approaching, and, and I didn't go over that, that um, poster right there, but there's four different ways of reading it. The way that you're describing it is called the futurist predictive. The way in, This way interprets Revelation as a prediction of future events. These events include a great tribulation lasting literal seven years, followed by Christ's second coming and final judgment. So that's that, that way of reading it. Um, the way that I'm reading it is probably called historicist there. This view builds on both the idealist and preter- preterist views, which you'd have to read before, and sees Revelation as a symbolic description of church's history from the beginning. So when, when any time that the end times or the... Um, the uh, what's the other way that Hebrews describes it? Um, the, the, uh, the final days is described. They're almost always describing from when Jesus was resurrected until... So that's two thousand years so far, right? And so um, the so the perspective again that I'm taking is is that those like those numbers, those things, the, the beast, the the serpent, and the false prophet, those represent something. Um, and for John, and I'm not saying they can't represent more than one thing, but for John, they represent Rome. Um, that's the that's the that's the beast in power at the time. Um, and again, we'll get to that. We will get to that. I know that there's um, lots of connection there with the idea of a great tribulation. Um, and maybe there is a great tribulation, um, but I think there's, uh, is experienced as persecution at the hands of Antichrist from all over time. Um, is there a literal single Antichrist? I don't know if the, I don't know if scripture really supports that um, because it's, that's basically taking one word from one part of the New Testament and applying it to the beast or the serpent or the false prophet, right? It's not described as, a, as the Antichrist. They are Antichrist, they're opposed to Christ, um, but that's just using that language to say that anyone anyone who, I mean Christians, people who claim the name of Christ I think Constantine, um, again what they mentioned is that persecution happens in the Roman Empire until 300 AD Constantine claimed to be a Christian the way that he lived, the way that he acted, he was an antichrist he did not live in the way of Christ um, and so the antichrist I think is it could be, um, it can be different people at different time. Um, Again, the one, one government, one world leader is another thing that is being read into the text. Um, it's being pulled from different places and, and kind of making um, this uh, scenario again, where where the West is primarily central. I think it could become fulfilling prophecy too. That's true. It could, and I think that that's possible. It's definitely not to say that it doesn't, it can't happen. But I I believe that John is primarily concerned about his his readers, the China people that he's no. writing to. The time that he was writing, the Roman Empire was
1: stretched from North Africa up to most of the European world, all the way up to right up through up into China. A
0: little bit of Asia. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, where, we're at, where the, the, these messages are primarily written to is kind of at the edge of the empire um, in Asia. Um, and uh, uh, Eastern, no, Western Asia. So
1: everyone would have known about the Roman Empire,
0: and at that point, they were still trying to expand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, again, I think I've mentioned this. The Roman Empire wanted to take over the whole world. Pax Romana, they were going to bring peace to everybody. And if you resisted them, you're going to die. (laughs) That's their kind of peace, and that's anti-Christ peace, I think. Uh, Right? Christ doesn't bring peace that way. Christ refuses to kill. Christ refuses to, instead Christ lays down his life, right? That's what the Lamb represents. Yeah, and, and these are heavy topics and, and I would want to get into them. Um, I was just saying, we do, yeah.
1: we do have have leaders today that are trying to do the same thing. Certainly. And it's, I mean, you, you can see Russia yeah. trying to expand out. Certainly. China trying to expand out. I mean, and that's just, those two over there, there are also places like Iran
0: I think, and again, this is this is where I get in trouble here, um, and maybe lose you. And I hope not. Um, I grew up as a teenager going. I went to a. I was a teenager. I went to a retreat that we went to, and um, they love to do these kind of scary things to try to keep us saved as as uh, Christians. I'm not a big fan of stuff like that. Trying to scare you into heaven. Um, I don't think that's the way of Christ. Um, but I remember they would do. They would they would have some of the youth workers at nighttime. We'd be sitting around a campfire, and they'd put black mask on. They'd come up and they'd do the whole you, you know they'd have a fake gun and ask us if we would we'd surrender our faith or something like that. And I remember the guy who was sort of the youth leader. Um, this was in Obama's presidency, okay. And maybe you heard this. Maybe you thought this during Obama's presidency. I don't, I'm not I'm not getting political here. I'm just saying um, this. I heard this as a teenager. That Obama was the Antichrist. Y'all think that Obama's the Antichrist? I mean, he, y'all, he doesn't. He's not in power anymore. He might still be an Antichrist. Maybe I'm not. I'm not. Again, I'm not. I'm not making a political statement here. But, but like, I've got a bookshelf in there full of Hal Lindsey. I don't know if y'all have heard of Hal Lindsey. He predicted that the world's was going in like six times. I mean, you've got, I've got a book in there called The 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988. Y'all ever seen that little pamphlet? I've got that. People have been predicting that. No, no, now, now is the rumors of wars and the wars. Now, now this is what Jesus is talking about. Wars and rumors of wars have been happening since humanity started building cities. Right? Um, that, that, that prediction is about as vague as Jesus could get. About when he's coming back. Because wars and he, rumors of wars, you know, the U.S. has like never not been in a war. Even when we feel like we're at peace, that we're in a war somewhere. We're involved in a war somewhere. Wars and rumors of wars are constantly happening. You could say um, there's other things like natural events that Jesus talks about as being signs of the end times that are getting worse. Um, and that's true. The climate is, is being affected, right? It's getting worse. That is true. And we could talk about that as, as signs of the end of time. I would say that um, Roman, or Christians who lived in the Roman Empire, when they heard these words, they weren't thinking that John was talking about something that was going to happen 2,000 years later. They were saying this is happening right now. Um, and again, Christians have been reading this text throughout time saying that this is happening right now. Um, we're experiencing great tribulation right now. Um, and we still wait. We still wait. And hope. And as we get through Revelation, the whole goal, the whole purpose of the book, is to say that, yeah, there's tribulation. If you're remaining faithful to Jesus. Now if you're one of if you're a Christian who's compromising your faith here and there so that you can fit in with Babylon, right? So Babylon's mentioned throughout the book of Revelation. It's just a just a code word for Rome, which is really just a code word for any empire, any system of belief that is outside of Jesus, that is apart from Jesus. They want you to compromise spread out your allegiance here and there and and, and, and remain faithful to i mean you know be, be a Christian, but also do these things that require you to compromise your faith you're saying i 'm going to take this part of my faith out so that so that I can be so I can participate in the empire in this way so I can participate in Babylon or Rome um, or the u s in this way right in any any empire that we would live in right um, that's the danger of um, of saying that um, any, any um, one nation, um, right, is going is to be the, the savior of us, right? Not even, not even Jerusalem, not even Israel can do it. No nation. Um, that's really what the church represents is a change to say, okay, I'm going to stop focusing on one nation being my people. Now it's open to everyone. Now, now it's um, every nation from every tribe, every tongue have, have the opportunity to be God's people. Um, I know I'm just rambling on now, but there's a, this a deep connection here in all of this. Um, yeah, um, how to get to the last one? Um, again, yeah, this is this is what I, this is what I've been saying in chapter seven. As throughout the apocalypse, John is not interested in presenting a blueprint for the future that contains details of events that will be literally fulfilled. Rather, John is using pictorial language, descriptive language. He's painting an image with words. So in order to offer hope to Christian communities that are struggling to maintain their commitment to God during difficult circumstances, while we should understand that this is first for those believers in the first century, I do not want us to misunderstand that, well, it doesn't mean anything for us. Well, Romans and Galatians and Philippians and Ephesians, those weren't written to us. But we still We still pull a lot of... Um, Important things for our own lives in those, right? They were written to a certain group of people, but they still apply to us just the same way as Revelation. Revelation was a letter to Christians, but that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us. Um, We still can pull very specific things for us, Um, and I kind of tied some ends in there hopefully for you, but Revelation can still offer, it's written to offer hope as we look around at the state of the world. And we say that, like, compromising, maybe not at the, the, the point of death, not at the, the, the point of a sword, but compromising our faith, that is still at work in our lives. Remaining faithful to Jesus, remaining committed to God, first commandment faithfulness, is just as hard for us now, even if we don't have a, a sword pointed down at us, right? It can be hard. It can be real easy to compromise our faith. It can be real easy. I mean, I'll just talk, we were just talking about this with our girls at dinner time. I... Um, we were having a conversation about what church is, and we were trying to describe to them that you know, we, we sometimes get in this mindset that we think that church is just something fun we do, we just go to church twice a week to do some fun things. And if I don't feel like going to church, I don't have to go to church, you know, right? Like, that's not right, that's not what church is. Um, I, I, it, it, as a pastor and coming from my past, a pastoral heart. If we're coming to church when we feel like it and staying home, now this isn't to say if you're unwell, if you don't feel, if you're sick or your, your body is weak, you, you can't physically come, that's one thing. But if it's just, man, I really don't feel like going to church today. I'm just not going to go. Then we're just, we're just using church just like, like I told the girls. That's like going to the park. Like, I don't feel like going to the park today, so I'm not going to go. That's not what church is. You can't do that with school. Right, if you got a doctor's appointment to treat you, if you got a, a, an appointment, um, a psychological appointment, an exam, or something for counseling, you can't do. That. i don't feel like going, I'm just not gonna go. Right? No, that's not what church is. Church and, and living a Christian life, being a Christian requires us to, to be faithful worship. and worship, and this is where this is where this text. Remember, this is a worship scene that's happening happening in chapter seven. We're get we've gotten away from chapter seven, I know, but this is a worship scene in chapter seven. What does worship do? Is it just something cool that we get to do? We get to listen to some cool music? We get to be entertained by a preacher? No. We come to church to be be grounded. To be grounded in our faith. To be grounded in the worship of Christ so that when we go out into the world and we do the things that we were required to do to live and exist, we're grounded in that faith so that we're not compromising our faith. So that we're not saying, well, I am a Christian, but you know, I'd really like to participate in this thing. I'd really like to act this way around these people. I I really don't feel like holding my temper. right? I play softball out there on Sunday, and 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 uh, somebody asked me the other day, "Is that a church league?" No, it ain't a church league. I promise you, it's a church league. Uh, I'm out there, and and sometimes I get a little competitive, and maybe I'm getting frustrated because I'm getting bitched again this week, and I got pastor on the back of my shirt, so it's particularly the <laughs> emphasis for me. But but as believers, we you know we, we have to find ways to. To, to live in that and, and recognize um, the way that we're behaving, the way that we're acting, the way that we're living. Um, and, and are we being faithful to the way of Christ? Um, are we acting like Christ acts? And that is a simple thing. Uh, it sounds so simple, just this, our, our daily interactions, going to the grocery store, things like that, or road rage. That was a big thing for me when I lived in the city, right? It was one of the reasons I wanted to come back to a small town. I was, I was tired of the way I felt driving. I, I didn't feel like Christ to me. Um, and that's important. That's really important. And that's what worship is supposed to do. What worship it does um, for us, right, is, is it grounds us in, in the life of the church. It grounds us in the life of Jesus and the Christ. So that when we're out in the world, we're, we're, we've been, first of all, shaped by the cross. We've been, first of all, cruciformed, right, um, uh, formed in the, in the shape of a cross. And we live our lives in that way. That's what it means to be faithful to the Lamb. That's what it means to be marked by the Lamb. Um, and, and humility. Alright. Sometimes I get to preach a sermon on Wednesdays and I like it. Alright, any thoughts before I pray us and dismiss us out? I just, when you
1: start looking at it as what as <clears throat> Revelation is, is, is showing how how to respond to the world. And that, that's how it, that's how I see it applied in my life. Is this is how I respond in worship, for one thing. That but yeah, but that, that's that's that's
0: that's huge. Yeah, and I want to keep exploring these themes. I mean, really, um, as we go deeper into it, we're going to keep we're going to keep being shown this in the Book of Revelation. Well, let's pray, and um, I hope you'll hope you'll come back in the, in the coming weeks as we get more into these different topics. We thank you, O oh God, for this day. We thank you for your word, even the book of Revelation, which Martin Luther, the great reformer, said shouldn't even belong in our Bible. It, he just didn't understand it. John Calvin, another 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 church theologian, he didn't like it. He didn't want it to be a part of it. He didn't understand it. And there, there's been so many of even these important theologians in the history of the church who have misunderstood or, or not been able to, to To address what this this book is about. It's one of the most contentious books in our Bible, but we thank you for it because we know it's about worship. It's about worshiping you. And it can be confusing. There's language in it that's hard to understand and and influences from other perspectives that, that really take hold in our lives and really scare us, oh God. But we know that this book is not meant to scare us. It's not meant to to make us terrified of you, of the Lamb, but rather to take comfort and knowledge and knowing that through it all, through the difficulty of being faithful and not compromising our faith, you are with us and you will be there at the end. We will know that we were faithful to the end once we've been marked with you and, and we bear that mark in our lives, oh God. Help us, oh God, truly, not just someday, but now, today, be marked by the Lamb, and by God. For as we will find now, there is another mark. It is not of you. We seek your mark in our lives. Faithful to you. Even if it means coming to the point of a sword. Help us, oh God. Help us to be your people. Go with us now and to the rest of this week. Help us, Lord, to be grounded in you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.